0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/slash Russell Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
1: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. The kids are not all right. According to study after study after study, we have record highs when it comes to anxiety and depression and other mental disorders. And even apart from that, just being around a lot of adolescents, there seems to be such a heightened level of stress. I have read the galleys of a book that I think is amazing and is going to be a decades-long conversation driver. And that's really weird because most people don't ever have one like that, but it's really odd for somebody to have two. And if you think about my guest today, Jonathan Haidt, who is social psychologist at New York University's Stern School of Business, he wrote the book, The Righteous Mind, which... Not only have we quoted so many times here, but it seems as though every kind of meeting that I'm in, even when they're completely different religiously or politically or in any other way, cites that book and the work done in that book. Well. Here comes another one that I think is going to do the same thing about the issue we're talking about today. It's called The Anxious Generation How the Great Rewiring of Childhood is Causing an Epidemic of Mental Illness, and it will be coming out soon. So you'll want to keep your eye out for it. Jonathan Haidt, thanks for being with us today.
2: What a pleasure, Russell. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and and I appreciate your work, and, and I appreciate the many conversations I've had with you.
1: You argue something really is
2: different Mm -hmm. now. That's right. That's right. So, you know, every generation since the time of Plato and Aristotle has thought the one after them is soft. There are certain things that are normal (laughs) misunderstandings between generations. But this is the first time that all of the indicators on the dashboard are flashing red. That is, it's not just that we misunderstand each other. It's that levels of anxiety and depression and self-harm and suicide all began going up at the same time. Suicide a little bit earlier, suicide begins to go up around 2008, 2009, but everything else goes skyrocketing around 2012. There's there's really very little sign of a mental health crisis in 2010. If you, if you just looked at Ooh. all the trends until 2010, you'd say, things are as they've always been. But then all of a sudden, the levels begin going up, especially for girls. And here's the kicker. Everyone has a theory as to why it goes up around 2011, 2012. But it's always like, oh, you know, because of school shootings, or it's something about America. Mm -hmm. Well, the exact same thing happened in Canada, the UK, Australia, happened in the Scandinavian countries. So there is no other theory. There is no, nobody's even proposed another theory other than it's when kids stop seeing each other in person and they move their lives onto their devices. You go from the play-based childhood to a phone-based childhood around 2011, 2012 is when most kids switch over from a flip phone to to an iPhone. And that's when the mental health crisis begins. All the dashboard lights begin flashing red and they've gotten worse and worse every year since then.
1: So it's not a COVID-related pandemic stress uh, sort of marker. It predates that. That's right.
2: So a lot of people think that this was caused by COVID and it wasn't at all. Jean Twenge was the first to notice this with her book, iGen. Jean Twenge was the first to say, look, something's going terribly wrong. She said that in 2016, 2017. A lot of people said, oh, no, you're overinterpreting. No, it's just, you know, correlation, nothing. But the numbers have gotten worse and worse since then. And in 2019, when I started on this project, things were looking terrible. And Jean and I and others started saying, what kids most need is less time on their devices and more time out playing with each other. And then COVID comes in, what happens? We say, oh no kids, you can't go outside and play with each other Mm -hmm. because you might transmit COVID. How about you spend all day on your devices? And so COVID made things worse, Mm. but actually American children were already socially distanced by 2019. That is, kids used to spend a lot of time with each other. Kids used to see their friends. That's what kids do until around 2012. And then the number of the hours spent per week with friends drops and drops and drops so that by 2019 it's already so low that when covid restrictions come in it just goes down a little bit more. So all of this was baked in before covid.
1: Hmm. I was talking uh, the other day to Amanda Ripley, hmm. the author of High Conflict. She's she's amazing. And she she said at one point to me, "I don't know how you survived." And then she she talked about some experiences that I had had in the past and I thought about that later and I thought well you know I would say grace of god but how did that grace of god come about and one of the key things I think w- was the way that my parents responded to me and and if I would go out in the in the morning when it wasn't a school day be in the woods I'm in the woods all day long or I'm with one of my friends riding bicycles all day long, nobody knew where I was. Nobody had a GPS tracker on me or, or anything like that. And I had no way to contact my parents if something had happened. But it actually, I think, was necessary for me to learn how to live. Right. And you talk about in this book the difference between a play-based childhood and safetyism. What, what, what's safetyism?
2: Right. So, so safetyism is the worship of safety. Of course, we want our kids to be safe, but there mm. are lots of conflicting values. And if you take one value, you say safety trumps everything else. So a tiny reduction in risk is worth sacrificing thousands of hours of play outside. And it's true that if you never let your kid out, they'll never be abducted. But then again, if you do let your kid out, they'll never be abducted either. There's essentially zero abduction in this country other than by the non-custodial parent in a divorce proceeding. But safetyism is the worship of safety to the point where we are paranoid and we convey that paranoia to our kids and we teach them that the world is dangerous. You can't cope with it and bad people will hurt you if you go out in it. And so what you were describing before is what you might call a hunter-gatherer childhood. I believe that's what we evolved for. We evolved uh, in the woods, essentially, for millions of years. And the the whole evolution of childhood is about kids mastering skills that they'll need as adults. And so that then when they reach adulthood, they actually are competent. But what we began doing in the 90s, just as the crime rate was dropping, there was a big crime wave when you and I were growing up. There was a, a big explosion of crime in the 70s and 80s. In the 90s, those rates drop, it gets really safe, but we freak out about child abduction. And we say, kids can't go out on their own. You can't go play in a park, it's too dangerous, you'll be abducted. And so- Satanic panic. Yeah, yes, that's right, there was, there was a lot mm-hmm. of that. There were daycare panics, there were all kinds of panics. We, we stopped trusting each other, that's one of the big things. We stopped trusting other adults. And so I imagine when you were a kid, if you got in trouble, you could go to somebody's house or an adult might step in, Adults were looking out for the kids, right? Is that true when you were growing up?
1: They gave me the space, it seemed, to learn how to be. And there was a safety net. I knew there was a safety net there, but they Mm -hmm. had me walk the road.
2: That's right. But that brings in a few additional elements to what a healthy childhood is. And so I'll just Mm -hmm. put two words out there. One is community and the other is mentors. And so it doesn't make any sense for us to only learn from our parents. There's no reason to think your parents know everything. And so all over the world, especially once kids reach around age nine, 10, 11, they get really interested in adult activities and, oh, look at this carpenter. And, and, you know, so kids are sort of, they're looking at what adults are doing and then other adults are taking an interest in them. So kids need to learn from multiple adults. And that largely has stopped. Mm. We don't trust other adults. We think they're gonna sexually molest them. And Mm. the other key word, as I said, is community. It was only late in writing the book. You know, I, I worked on this book for a long time, and near the end, I realized, wait a second, one of the biggest concepts here is community versus networks. So a community is a group of real people who are kind of stuck together. You can't just come and go as you please. It takes a while to get in. It's hard to get out. And so you have to get along with each other. Human children need to be embedded in communities. And I would say a religious community is the quintessential perfect community because it's it's full it's saturated with moral meaning kids need moral guidance they need a sense that there is a way the world ought to be and i need to learn it and conform to it so kids need to be raised in human communities but what happened after about 2012 is there was no more time for that it was all about networks and what are these networks Ooh. a network of followers on facebook on instagram you can come in, you can go, you don't use your real name. So it's transient, it's not binding, and it's not much of a moral community. So actually, what you described, to me, sounds like actually the perfect human childhood with other adults and a lot of freedom, and you made mistakes. And I bet sometimes you were scared, sometimes you probably got hurt, but made it home. That's what you need to do.
1: Hmm. Well, what changed in terms of, I I, I know what changed in terms of the kids, or, or you've convinced me of that after reading this book. But why did we end up with such anxious parents? Mm. I mean, you, you talk about it. This I had to chuckle when you mentioned a merry-go-round on yeah. a playground. And I, mean, I know at our school, and I'll bet at your school, there was sort of a rickety, merry-go-round that was just, you know, could go up to 90 yep. miles an hour if you pushed it fast yep. enough. <laughs> and it would never be allowed on oh, any no, playground. that's right,
2: that's right. No, I mean, I still have those visceral feelings, like you lie back and as you get closer to the edge, the centrifugal forces are, are you know, there's harder <laughs> on your head than on your feet, you know, and you try to like stand. And, so, and, and yeah, it's dangerous, but that's actually a benefit. Because if you have kids playing on a playground where it's possible to get hurt, then they learn every day how to not get hurt. But if we always Ooh. keep kids in a situation where they can't get hurt, they don't learn how to not get hurt. And so the Europeans are actually way ahead of us. In Britain, they, where they have fewer lawyers and fewer fears of, you know, of, of liability, they've begun putting construction materials in playgrounds, put bricks and lumber, Ooh. let kids make things out of bricks and lumber. And yeah, they're going to pinch their fingers and something's going to fall on their foot. But they learn how to handle these construction materials. And in America, we don't do that. We say, if anyone can get hurt, we're going to ban it. If there's a snowball fight and someone gets hit, we ban snowball fights. And so we're penny wise and pound foolish here. We're, we're, we're trying to, pr- and that's safetyism. We we want absolute levels of safety, which means we have fragile kids who are more likely to kill themselves.
1: So so how did the parents get that way? I mean, it's, it's not as though previous generations of parents had a a manual uh, that mm-hmm. was lost somewhere in the 80s or 90s, early 2000s. What happened to yeah. the parents? Because it seems that that kind of safetyism predates the 2012 era that we've been mm-hmm. talking about That's with right. smartphones.
2: Well, in a way, in a way, actually, parents did have a manual, and it was lost. For all of human history, there were babies around. And there were women taking care of babies, and there were women nursing babies, and there were girls, you know, seven, eight, 10-year-old girls were helping care for the babies. And there was wisdom about how to raise children, passed down, especially among the women. But, you know, men saw it too. And there were large families. And so there was an accumulation of wisdom for thousands of years, and certainly up until the 40s, 50s, even into the 60s, there was that. But then birth rates plunge, Divorce rates rise. Women enter the workforce. People are spending more time in school. They're spending more time at work. And by the 90s, that generational knowledge passed down in any community is now very thin. It's kind of shredding. It's not really there. So what happens? Oh, then add on one more thing. A kind of a professionalization, an idea, especially as and I'm, take, I'm drawing here from Alison Gopnik. She has this wonderful book, The Gardener and the Carpenter. She lays this out. As, as people get more educated, as the professional class goes to school more, they begin to treat child rearing like a school project. Hmm, let me just read hmm. the, right, the right manual. Let me read the right expert, and then I'll do it right, and then my kid will come out like a, a genius. And that doesn't work. Kids are not like that. You, you can't be like a carpenter trying to make a kid. You have to be a gardener, creating a garden and then plants are going to grow. You want to pull out the bad weeds, but ultimately the plants are going to grow. And and so if you think of parenting as a a gardener, you're going to get the best outcome you can. But but especially educated people became carpenters and that produces bad kids or that, I'm sorry, that produces kids who are not as healthy, I should say, as a gardening parent.
1: I thought several times while reading your book about another book that was really uh, influential on me as well that came out in the past couple of years, M.R. O'Connor's book, Wayfinding, Mm -hmm. in which the the argument is uh, human beings don't have homing instincts the way that uh, birds do, say. And so part of what it means to learn how to navigate life is by walking Mm -hmm. and by learning to, when one gets lost, find one's way back that actually is a key part of uh, growing up. And I think you look at the Bible and there, there's that pattern there, almost exactly what you describe as a secure base. So there are pillars and monuments, mm-hmm. Ebenezer and Bethel, and but there also is this sense of y- you don't know where you're going and there's something preparatory mm-hmm. about yeah. that. With that secure base, I mean, how... How does a parent achieve? So what
2: you're asking about there is what's called the attachment system in psychology. And it was really studied and laid out by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth back in the forties and fifties. And what they showed is that human childhood is about a child needing a secure base that they can go to whenever there's a threat, when things are frightening. But the point of the secure base is not just to keep the child safe. The point is to give the child the confidence to go explore off base, because that's where all the learning takes place. You don't learn very much when you're clinging to your mother. But if you have a mother you can depend on, then, and you'll see this in toddlers, they'll wander off, they're really curious, they'll wander off, maybe they'll even go out of sight. And if something bad happens, they might come running back. But as they get more confident, they don't come running back at every little thing. They can stay out longer, they can learn more. And so we have to see the, the whole point of safety is not to just prevent the child from being eaten or abducted, it's to encourage the child to leave the base and
1: explore. Ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful, evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. With smartphones, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've noticed is that when that topic comes up, it feels a lot to me like the conversation about climate change for a lot of people, which is not that they disbelieve that climate change is happening, but it seems so big yeah. to them that they say, Well, what could I, what could I do about it? I mean, so there, there's a, a sense in which both with parents, but also with people who who will say, My smartphone is really messing with me, but I mean, it's 2023, what are you gonna do? Mm-hmm. That seems to be the attitude That's right. That's there.
2: It seems to be, right, it seems to be something so big, what can we do? And so the the key idea I wanna introduce here is called a collective action problem. There are certain things that are impossible to solve as an individual, but if we all work together, then they're easy to solve. And the phones are, the, are a classic social science collective action problem. So you take the, I'm sure many of your listeners are parents, many of your listeners have teenagers, and all of us hear the same thing. My kids are both in high school. We hear the same thing. Mom, I'm the only one. I'm the only one who isn't on Snapchat. I'm the only one who doesn't have a smartphone. And so the kid feels left out, and then parents give in because nobody wants their kid to feel left out. Right. And so if you're alone, if it's just you making the decision, well, maybe you're hurting your kid. You don't know. But what if you and a few of your, uh, the parents of your kid's friends talked, and you know what? We're all not gonna give our kids smartphones until high school, until 16. We're all gonna hold off. Well, then suddenly it's much easier to do. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is I'm trying to solve collective action problems so that we can actually all escape this tragedy together. And there are four solutions that I propose, each of which solves a collective action problem. So the first is far more unsupervised play. Now, if you send your kid out to play in the park, you're gonna get arrested because your kid's the only one out there and there's no one to play with. But Mm -hmm. if you organize it, if you you have a town or a school that supports free-range kids, it supports free-range play, and you have multiple people sending their kids out to the school playground or to each other's houses, uh, so you can solve the play problem collectively. It's even clearer when we look at the phones. No kid needs a phone at age 10, 11, 12. Now, they could use a a basic phone to text to say, mom, I'll be home, you know, at five o'clock, but nobody needs the internet. Nobody, no kid needs a smartphone in their pocket. So if we all just say no smartphones till high school, let's just agree on that. Don't give a smartphone till high school. You can give a basic phone. If your kid is really out on on her own, great, give them a phone so, you know, you can keep in touch, but no smartphone till high school. That's the second one. A third is no social media till sixteen. Social media is incredibly bad for girls. I mean, the damage it's done to girls is greater than any public health threat we've ever seen. It's much bigger than leaded gas, lead poisoning. Girls all over the world are much more depressed and anxious and self-harming and suicidal because of these phones. So, and and especially the social media, hits the girls. So no social media till 16, which, you know, right now people might think, well, but everyone's on it. Well, yeah, but what if everyone wasn't on it? What if half the families in your town said, no, not until 16? well, now suddenly your daughter's not the only one who's excluded. Half the kids are not on it. And guess what? They can meet up and actually have fun together. And then the last one, the last coordination device is phone-free schools. Every school, K through 12, needs to say, you check your phone at the door and then you have seven hours off. You have seven hours in which you can attend to the teacher and you can attend to each other. What happens now is 72% of schools say that they ban phones. What they mean is, we have a rule that you shouldn't take your phone out during class, which is a joke, because the kids are so mm-hmm. addicted. If anybody is texting, everybody has to be checking during class. So the kids are on during class, they're just, they just hide it. And then as soon as they get out of class, they're all on their phones instead of playing or talking to each other. So it's those four things, far more unsupervised free play, no smartphone till high school, no social media till 16, phone-free schools. If we could do those, and those are all attainable, we would be living in a very different world and our kids' brains would not be so scrambled.
1: Hmm. You mentioned that uh, that social media particularly is, is much worse for girls than boys. Why is that? So
2: girls and boys' sociality is very, very different. Boys tend to do things together. When they get together, they do things. And so video games has taken over for the boys. Now, video games are not, harmful to most boys, but they're incredibly harmful to 5 or 10% of them who get addicted. So this is, I know mm. less about this. I've only begun to study this, this part more recently. But the boys, they're not out doing pickup soccer games. They go home after school and they're on video games. They play several hours a day. And 5 to 10% of them are severely damaged by that. Now, can you imagine a consumer product, a toy? I suppose there was a new toy. Oh yeah, it's incredibly fun. It's more fun than anything we've ever had. 5 or 10% of the kids are going to be damaged by it. But, you know, whatever. No, We would never do that. We would never allow a consumer product that damaged five or 10% of the kids. So that's for the boys. They don't go in so much for posting photos of themselves and their perfect life. They just don't do that. Whereas girls, what happened in 2012, when they all got phones, the girls went straight for the visual platforms. Girls went for Instagram, Pinterest, Mm -hmm. you know, a couple others. And once they're posting photos, now it's all about how do you look? It's all about looks. It's Mm. so sad. You know, we made so much progress in the last 50 years of girls not just being sex objects, not just being judged for their beauty. And that's all gone now because the girls are completely obsessed with makeup and videos about how do I do skincare. I mean, it's so superficial. So the girls are all in these visual platforms. It's constant social comparison. And most girls are below average now because- the average is not the real average. The what you see, what every girl sees is all these beautiful girls with perfect lives. Mm. It's not real. It's all, it's all, you know, manipulated to be as, as attractive as possible. So it's just been devastating for the girls for, for many reasons. That there's the eating disorder content, there's the bullying, there's the feeling of left out because you see on Snapchat, oh, everybody's over here and I wasn't invited. So social media really targeted, you know, I ask all your female listeners here, what was the worst year of school? most of them are gonna say seventh grade plus or minus. It's around seventh and eighth grade is the hardest. Mm. That's when girls have the most bullying, it's terrible. Uh, Imagine women listening to this podcast, imagine if we took all the worst parts of what you remember about seventh grade and we made them 10 times worse. That's what your daughters Mm. are going through. Mm.
1: You know, one of the things that I've noticed is there are all these studies showing that boys tend to trend right now conservative, politically, and girls tend to trend more progressive. Yes. And most of that is within normal bounds. But I've noticed that when the extremes do happen with adolescents or college age uh, kids, that the girls tend to extreme left, the sort of social justice right. warrior stuff that, that we've talked about. But the boys seem to be drawn to misogynistic, yes. fascistic. That's right often explicitly racist and sometimes even Nazi right. stuff. Right. And and it seems to me that that is even for the kids who aren't drawn to it. I mean, my sons are more sheltered than 98% probably of, of people. And when somebody put up a meme of me next to Andrew Tate mm-hmm. and said, which way Western man, mm-hmm. my son immediately said, why is Dad with Andrew Tate? Right. And my is, thought yeah. was, how do you know who that they is? All, well, they all know. They all so, know. so why is that happening? Where there's this, this sort of both this extreme, this move to extremes, but also why is it going in these two different directions?
2: Yes. No. Thank you. That that's a that is a question I'm thinking a lot about because my original research was on moral foundations theory, morality and politics, mm-hmm. tribalism. And it's tragic that we're seeing the split among our teenagers, this gender difference split among our teenagers. A lot of it, I believe, has to do with the nature of identitarianism. That is, we might think of the left as being associated with socialism or communism back in the 20th century, but not anymore. It really became about identity, and I call it identitarianism, which is the idea that everything should be studied as a struggle between identity groups over power. What matters Mm -hmm. is your race, your gender, LGBTQ status, all that. Now, this is a terrible way to think. This is an un-American way to think. This is a way that leads to constant conflict. It leads to depression and anxiety as well. What happens? When all the kids get on social media around 2012, especially Tumblr seems to be a real petri dish for nurturing these new ideas about identity, that your identity is something you construct, and if anyone disrespects it, then they've harmed you. No, identity can only be conferred by a community. Your identity is your position in society, traditionally. But these new ideas about identity and vulnerability come in, and it's the girls who embrace them. It's the girls on the left who embrace them. They, they go in for intersectionality. They go in for seeing everything as a matrix of oppression. So even though things have been getting better and better for girls, suddenly around 2013, 2014, left-leaning girls think the world is now full of sexism, much more so than they did a few years ago. So they're going in for yeah. these identitarian ideas about struggle and oppression. Whereas the boys generally, especially the white boys, the white boys are told identity is all that matters. Everyone has to think about their identity. Oh, you're white. Well, <laughs> don't identify with whiteness, otherwise you're bad. So I've seen this at, at some of the schools I've spoken at. The boys will be very quiet. They don't say anything in public because they're just gonna be shamed and attacked. But at the age of the internet, they then go online and they go to people who say, no, you're not the bad ones, you're the good ones. They're the bad ones. And so Mm. the boys, in part because we keep beating on them, especially the white boys, especially in any progressive space, the white boys are always told, you're bad, you have to address your privilege, you shut up, you're taking up too much space. Well, that makes them very prone to recruitment by far-right extremists and misogynists. So this is a horrible state of affairs. Girls are moving to the left, as you said, boys are moving to the right, but guess what? Girls on the left will not date anyone who's not on the left. Girls who go to college Mm. won't date anyone who didn't go to college. Well, who's graduating from college? Mostly girls on the left. They're gonna have nobody to marry. Mm. There's gonna be a huge shortage for women on the left of anyone to marry. So we've already seen the sexes coming apart and not finding each other. And then we can talk about dating apps. The dating apps are able to drown you in possibilities, but yet somehow young people are having less and less sex and there's less and less marriage. Mm. And that was for the millennials. Now that we're talking about Gen Z, which is birth year 1996 and later, my prediction is the millennials are going to plummet in fertility and marriage and happiness.
1: Hmm. What about, you mentioned in The in the Anxious Generation, you talk about porn. Mm-hmm. And one of the shifts that I have seen just over the past few years is there were a lot of parents who were worried about porn, and there were a lot of young people who were concerned about mm-hmm porn in their own lives. And then there seemed to be this sort of shift where people started to think about porn just the way they think about masturbation. Mm -hmm. Eh, you know, that's just part part of growing up. And I've seen that even with conservative evangelical Christian folks. They wouldn't articulate it that way, but that's kind of the attitude. Where is that going?
2: Well, first tell me, what year are you talking about? When did you see this shift? Are you talking like in the 90s, you are talking about the last five years?
1: Oh, no, I'm talking about just within the last maybe two oh, years. Oh, Okay. Okay.
2: Because, so I've just begun to study porn also. I was focused on social media for a long time. And only while writing the book did I realize, oh, my God, no, it's not just social media. For boys, it's video games and porn. The girls aren't watching. I mean, they see it, but almost no girls look at porn daily, whereas, you know, many or most boys look at porn daily. So porn turns out to be a huge problem. Now, I couldn't say too much about it in the book because there are almost no experiments. You can't do experiments on teenagers in porn. You can't bring half into the lab and say, here, you go look at this. Right. So yeah. oh, so, I, so I didn't have a lot to go on in terms of the research. But the stories I'm hearing from, from young men about how they become addicted to porn, it makes them less likely to pursue a woman, a girl, it, it, it is scrambling their brain in the exact years. And so you
1: would say addiction is a is a proper term yes. in some yes. of these. Yes, There cases. is
2: some dispute yeah. as to whether addiction is the right word because neurochemically it's a little different. It is different from say a heroin addiction, but if you believe that gambling is an addiction, and of course it is, if you believe that Ooh. some people get addicted to slot machines, this is exactly the same. At least you know, the phone, social media is exactly the same. And then you bring in pornography, which goes much deeper into the brain, much deeper into deep, deep motives for, for sexuality that, boy, that adolescent boys are you know, mad for. So, I, so from what I'm hearing and from what I was able to find in the research in the book, once kids become heavy users of porn, it makes them less interested in Uh, in real women, it makes it harder for them to get aroused by a real woman because she's not nearly as perfect and not perfect, but you know, unrealistically proportioned as as girls on porn. And then something I haven't seen much about, but I think might be a big deal here, is it used to be that you had to use your imagination for a lot of things in the world. You know, like if you're playing games Mm. with a friend and you have two sticks, you have to imagine a sword fight. But now you have a video game in which there's no imagination. It's just, you have this incredibly graphic war. It's amazing. No imagination. Well, same thing with sex. You know, you, when you and I were young, it, the big thing was, you know, magazines you, you, if you, if you somehow you had an older brother or something, you could somehow get a magazine, but you know, then you had to use your imagination. And that was it. But porn now is so graphic, so explicit, so in your face, if you go to these, st- and they all, you know, they've all gone to Pornhub. They all know Pornhub, there's no restriction. Anyone can go at any age. So I, I think it, it, there are so many things messing up our kids to have them going through their peak years of sexual transformation and development on porn, I think is another disaster that's, that's occurring all around us. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world.
1: 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on.
2: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical
0: roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much.
1: I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised
2: Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
1: Some people might be surprised. You're an atheist Mm -hmm. or an agnostic, and you spend a lot of time in The Anxious Generation talking about religious communities. And some people might be surprised by I really wasn't Mm -hmm. surprised by that, having... Read the righteous mind, but why is that the case? Why did you focus yeah. on that? Yeah,
2: so right, so I'm you know I'm Jewish. I you know like many Jews, you can be Jewish without believing in God. It was it, it was you know it's an option, and so I was one of these you know scientifically minded you know young Jewish boys who went into the social sciences, and and I had a I, I had a prejudice against religion in general when I was young. And, uh, you know, I read the Hebrew Bible when I was in college, and I was shocked by some of the things I read in, in the later books, you know, with genocide. So I was generally anti-religion in my 20s. But because I was studying morality and the evolution of morality, I came to see that we evolved with religion, and religion is is intimately part of our creating moral communities. And it was especially when I read uh, works by uh, Robert Putnam and, was the other one, the, the American Grace that religious people are better citizens, more socially minded. They give more to charity, not just in their own congregation, but even non-religious charities. And I really began to see, my God, the evidence about the benefits of religion for individuals and for communities is pretty large. I can't ignore this. So I, I came to have a lot of respect for religion. And my first book was The Happiness Hypothesis, which was about ancient wisdom. And so much of the world's wisdom is contained in religious texts. And I began to see that if you have a religious community that stretches back a long time, they have kind of purified or perfected wisdom about human development, about relationships, about about consciousness. So I've come to respect religion more and more as I've gotten older. I belong to a synagogue in New York. My, my son was bar mitzvahed. But I am still an atheist or agnostic. To bring it back to your question about the anxious generation— I want to share with you now a result that I, I I didn't put this graph in the book, but I'll be publicizing it when the book comes out. When we look at when we look at teenagers, look at high school kids, what was their mental state? How depressed were they? You you look back in you know the, in the 1990s, the early two thousands. It's it's long been the case that religious kids are a little happier than non-religious kids, and that's certainly true for adults too. And it's also been true that conservatives are a little happier than liberals. That's been true for a long time. So you, you see these lines and there, you can see the slight differences until 2012. Then what happens? The secular liberals go skyrocketing up into mental illness, skyrocketing. I mean, huge mm. increase, especially for the girls. Whereas this, the religious conservatives, they go up a little, but not much. And, and what that means, I think, is in 2012, roughly, is when the technology came like a tidal wave, like a tsunami, and it carried kids away. It just swept them away from each other, from their parents, from community, from tradition, from everything that came before. Swept them off into this bizarre virtual world of terrible short videos and influencers and craziness and social comparison. Who didn't get swept swept away? The kids who, how to be part of a community? How to go to church on Sunday? How to visit their grandparents or whatever? Actually, you tell me. You tell me. How is it that Christian kids are raised that you think might have kept them from being swept away the way the secular kids were?
1: Well, I think many of the things that you you do mention in the book, although I see some of those things fraying in in religious communities as okay, tell well. Tell me that. What do you see? But particularly uh, when it comes to, I found fascinating your section on rites of passage. Mm. And there, there, in most uh, evangelical churches, there was a, a basic structure of rites of passage that was more uniform, at least in certain traditions, than I see it being right now. Where baptisms often are kind of, yeah, we're going to have a baptism after the service, if you want to come come that sort of a that sort of a thing but maybe it was you we we have a, a group of us that get together sometimes on on Thursdays and just talk it was either you or maybe it was John Roush that talked about one of the reasons why midlife and older age is not as happy for people is because you have all of these rites of passage <laughs> early in life and then it's over and there is no rite of passage until the funeral. <laughs> that was, Which that was John Rauch, yes. yes. That was John. Yeah. I found that to be a fascinating, mm-hmm. fascinating concept. But r- why are rites of passage important? Mm.
2: Uh, so most societies, have they, they see that you, you have a challenge. How do you turn a girl into a woman? How do you turn a boy into a man? And for girls, actually, if you just wait, they will menstruate. And then if you just wait, they will become fertile. And so most societies do have rites of passage and they're always keyed to menstruation. When a girl menstruates, all sorts of things happen. There'll be a ceremony to welcome her in. She has to now get special knowledge that is reserved for women. It's not shared with girls. And interestingly, it's never the mother who does it. It's always gonna be another woman, not the mother. Mm. And because she's she has to be brought into the community of women. And it's always very, very gendered. Okay, so that's, the the women's story is usually pretty simple and it's very similar across societies. The story for men is very, very very different because with boys, there's no menstruation. There's no obvious uh, thing that happens. And the boys are all in the girl's world. The boys, when they're little, they're toddlers. They're surrounded by women who are caring for the kids and they're surrounded by sisters who are caring for the kids. So for them, they have to make a jump from these little soft, you know, girly things that don't look that different from girls in their bodies to a warrior. And how do you do that? So you have to have toughening. So rites of passage, they often have physical pain, puncturing the skin, going days in the woods, a survival challenge. So many societies have very harsh rites of passage for boys because they see you have to turn this soft little boy into a hard, strong man, and that takes several years. So I'm not saying we need that in our modern Western societies, but I came to see that if you just take away all that stuff, and instead you say, okay, you know what? You just have birthdays. On your birthdays, we'll give you presents, but that's it. You're on your own. We'll give you no guidance in how to be a man or a woman. In fact, we're going to make people stop talking about men and women. When I was a kid, you know, some I've grown up in the '60s and '70s, really. You know, my mother would sometimes say, you know, John, a gentleman would do this. And to my sister, you know, a lady would do this. Like, you know, in the circles I travel in sort of, you know, progressive educated urban circles, like no one would dare say that. Everything has Mm -hmm. to be ungendered. And I think we're doing our kids a disservice. Girls need guidance on how to become a woman. Boys need guidance on how to become a man. Now, 5% of each are gonna be gay and their interest is gonna be same sex. That's, you know, that's wonderful that we now accept that. and, And everyone can find marriage. Everyone can find love. But even still, men and women are in different developmental trajectories. And in part because of our fear of gender, of, of saying something sexist, we've abandoned kids to sort of an agender, you know, no guidance, adolescence. Adolescents need guidance. And so in the book, I proposed a plan for having steps on a ladder to adulthood where kids get, they get more freedom, but they also have more responsibilities every every even birthday. It's a little much to specify every single year, but I said, Let's make a big deal out of every even birthday 8 10 12 14 16 18 mm. and at each step you have a bigger deal and it's not just a birthday present with presents you might have more people gathering around you say okay now you can do you know now we'll let you do this thing here and now you know you know you can go out and work for money or now we'll, or I'll give you a bigger allowance in exchange for you doing more chores but kids need to make progress and they need adults to guide them on the progress once they all got on phones, the amount of guidance we give them as parents, dropped let, let's suppose it was 20% of their input before i don't know make up a number suppose you know 30 40 years ago 20% of the input to a kid was from parents and you know 10% mm-hmm. from teachers what, whatever numbers you want to make up cut all those numbers by 90% once they get a phone because everything goes through the phone and there's just very little input from adults
1: in my church we didn't really have a exciting sort of youth ministry although to some degree But there was a moment, and it wasn't really an official moment, but there was a moment when there were expectations suddenly from the church where suddenly you weren't vacation Bible school child anymore. You were expected to be part of the disaster relief stuff or part of the taking up of the offering or something like that. And that sense of responsibility... I think at least in my case, really gave me a sense of membership and belonging in a way that doing fun things that I would want to do wouldn't have done.
2: So so tell me more about that, because this is very, very important. One of the things we're seeing from young people today is that they feel their lives are meaningless, they have no value to anyone else, they have no sense of purpose. Are you saying that at a certain point, they would just call on you to go on some mission to help help other people? Or was it at a certain age? Was it a certain grade? Was it at confirmation? When was it?
1: It was just, a, there was a certain moment when I don't even think you would, you would notice it in terms of marking a before and an after. But there was just a certain point where you were invited, not just invited, you were kind of expected to be part of things that other okay. people in the church it's were involved 14? in. around age 14, like when would you say it was? Yeah, it was, yeah, maybe 12, 13, yeah. somewhere in, okay. in there. Yeah, so it's when, so it would be,
2: you know, both their bodies and their minds that are really changing in that period of early puberty. You know, age 11 to 14 is when the changes really start for both sexes, boys a little bit later. And so, and they're they're ready for more adult responsibility and they thrive if they're given it, because that's how they learn that actually they matter. What they do matters. And what we've done to our kids now is we've said, you know what, you know, you're, I'm investing everything in you. I want you to get into college, but mm-hmm. you know, it's all about you. And uh, kids can't thrive that way. They can't thrive if we just give them stuff. They have to feel generative. They have to feel a sense of effectance that they can make a mark on the world. And it sounds like your community did that. Actually, I'd love to talk with you about can we talk about how Christian communities could not, not fight back. That's not quite the right word. How could Christian communities adapt to this current technological onslaught and raise better kids? Because I think that religious communities, whether you're orthodox Jews or evangelical Christians, they have moral resources and structure and and parental influence far beyond what we have in secular culture, and it's going to be really hard to to restore childhood in secular circles but I think religious communities could do it. Now you've you know you, you you've read the book. We're talking here about Christian mm-hmm. communities. What do you think? What advice could you and I work up to give to Christian parents? Let's focus on, you know, if your kids are, you know, 8, 9, 10 years old, that's about when they're going to they're about to get a phone. What would you what do you think we can do?
1: You know, I think one of the things that We will need. And you did this in the book. It was striking that you went through, and you mentioned it here earlier from age one to 18 months, only screen is a FaceTime with another adult or something like that. And then you had these benchmarks. And that's one of the things I think there are a lot of parents and a lot of people in ministry who don't feel like they have the authority because there's a kind of legalism. That that sort of misuses authority to to come in and say, well, this is what you do until this age, and this. So so no one wants to do that, which means that parents are sometimes wondering, well, what is the, what should I do, and how should I do it? And I think a lot of times, adolescents and college age kids, it's the same thing. There's there's often not a template that's specific enough. Okay that a that somebody could come in and alter it if 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 it wasn't appropriate for them, but at least to have it. Okay. And I think one of the things too that is going to be increasingly necessary in Christian communities, you know, I don't agree with Jordan Peterson on, on a lot of things, but one of the things that I heard him say that I think is true is about the shift from having grandparents Cl- mm-hmm. close by, not just for the grandkids, but for the parents, because there's a certain aspect of of the kind of counsel that grandparent gives to his adult son mm-hmm. or daughter to say, yeah, this is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Because so much of it is trying to figure out, and I think both if you're going through it and if you're parenting through it, you don't know what's a... a five alarm fire, mm. what mm. is just a normal part of adolescence. And so having a kind of replacement when it's not there of grandparenting yeah. with it. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time talking about spiritual parenting, fathering and mothering, but not a lot of time about spiritual grandparenting. Mm. And I think there's something about that that we need to reclaim. Mm. That, that I think has been present in a lot of Christian traditions, but in some of them is being lost.
2: Okay, that's that's great. That's a real way forward, because one of my concerns, it, it didn't make it into a chapter in this book, but it'll be in my next book, Life After Babel, will be a chapter on wisdom deprivation disorder. How mm. in order to thrive, in order to live a full human life, you can't just invent everything yourself. You have to come into a tradition. Now, you know, you change the tradition with each generation, the tradition changes, but you have to have a have a tradition that you were born into, that binds you, forms you, and then you can alter it perhaps. And what's happened in recent years, in recent decades, I should say, is the almost complete cutting off of everything before five minutes ago. But, and especially in a, in a, in a Christian household, obviously you have the Bible, you have words and ideas from long ago interpreted by people from decades or centuries ago. So so you have much more of a connection to the past in a Christian, house in a religious household, I should say and i think what you just pointed out is just having grandparents around serves that same function mm-hmm. it's a connection to ideas from the past because if you have to run everything based just on things that we've learned in the last 5 minutes you're just going to flounder you're just going to be lost you're going to be you know there are so many terrible ideas floating around that are going to be gone tomorrow but if if you're immersed in them as anyone is who's on tiktok or instagram You're surrounded by terrible ideas and you don't know what's what. And so, yeah, to have a grandparent say, you know, that's all silly. All you need to do is this or whatever. Just to have that that perspective from decades ago is incredibly valuable. When we're together, we share emotions, we share experiences, and that happens in a community. But when kids are connected just on a network, well, they're gonna share emotions too, But so much of it is so negative, so dark, everything's terrible, everything's oppression, everything is ecological disaster. So negative emotions are stronger than positive emotions, they're also more contagious. So that's yet one more reason why we shouldn't hook kids up, hook themselves up on networks to each other to share negative thoughts. Much better to have them in real physical communities following moral exemplars and hearing testimonies from people who are grateful. That's contagious too.
1: Jonathan Haidt is the author of The Anxious Generation: How the Great Rewiring of Childhood Is Causing an Epidemic of Mental Illness. The book comes out March 26, 2024, so you will want to uh, go ahead and pre-order this one because you're going to you're going to benefit from it a lot. Jonathan Haidt, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Russell, always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore, produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers are Abby Perry. Director of Operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton.